right, welcome to This Week in Legal Blogging. I'm Bob Ambrogi uh, on behalf of LexBlog, and really happy today to be speaking with uh, Jim Walker, Miami Maritime lawyer and publisher of the leading blog, Cruise Law News, where his motto is, everything the cruise lines don't want you to know. <laughs> and and from what I from what I read of your blog, you're you're doing a pretty good job at that. Jim, how are you? Welcome. Good, good, Bob. Thanks. Nice to meet you. Yeah, good to meet you. Uh, just saying uh, before we went live, I'm surprised we we haven't met along the way somewhere along the line. But uh, great to meet you now. I uh, this is of course a crazy time for all of us. So let me just start by asking you how how you're doing and how you're holding up during all this. We're, we're doing fine. Um, we're all healthy. My, my oldest son is a uh, EMT, uh, and he has actually been very active in, in response. Um, we, we worry about him, but, but he's otherwise healthy, and, and we're doing great here. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, so, Jim, um, I want to talk a little bit about how you got down this road of blogging, and then maybe we can talk a little bit more about uh, what you've been covering, especially of late with so much going on in, in the cruise industry. But uh, you launched your blog 11 years ago, 2009. Uh, what what led you to do that? How did you get started? Well, I, I got started, my, my first website was a website that's no longer in existence called walkerlaw.com. And I used to be a defense attorney. I used to do product liability and maritime defense work and represented insurance companies. And I advertised that I defended. So, so you went from the dark side to the good side, isn't it? <laughs> right, from the wrong side to the right side. But, but I used to be a defense attorney, and I had a defense-oriented website called Walker Law. It was very egocentric, just about defending insurance companies and so forth and so on. But coincidentally, people started contacting me because in maritime law, the cruise lines require the filing of a lawsuit in a particular form, in a particular jurisdiction. Carnival, Norwegian Cruise Lines, Royal Caribbean, and many others uh, designate federal district court here in Miami as the location you have to file a lawsuit. So people would be looking for a lawyer and they would chance upon uh, a little squib where I talk about a cruise line on a website. And this is the olden days. I think I started this website back in 19... 95 or 1996, so I don't even know what search engines. I think there was an Alta Vista, Excite, and so forth, right. pre-Google. Yeah. Pre yeah. So people would chance upon me and not realize or not care, I suppose, that I was defending cruise lines and would say, can you represent me in suing a cruise line? And I was very indignant, like, how dare you even contact me about <laughs> something like that? And then I made a career choice uh, in the late 1990s, where I switched from uh, suing, I uh, switched to suing cruise lines, and I said, "Ha, huh, you know, I don't have any business. So how do I get the business?" So I created a website called Cruise Law, and this was about 1998, 1999, and then 1999, I, according to what I what I found, I was looking at it. Yeah, yeah looking up. Yeah. It's not up anymore, but yeah. Yeah, so I, so I looked at it actually this morning on the Wayback Machine to see up what on earth I was doing. And then I, I realized that I had something called Cruise Law News. So I had a little portion of my website where I talked about news-related issues pertaining to the cruise industry. 
and it, it was very amateurish looking. It's very garish. It, it was just a nightmare of a site. But people started contacting me and wanting me to represent them in, in, uh, in, in suing the cruise lines. So I kind of forgot all of that, quite frankly. And then, but then, you know, 2009, I started thinking, well, I've got to tell stories about the cruise industry. I, f I found Kevin uh, O'Keefe and looked up his, his uh, was very impressed by what I saw with, with Lex's blog, called him up and he said, let's do it. And so I created uh, a blog. I didn't know how to blog back then, but I started writing about everything pertaining to the cruise lines. A lot of things that I, areas of the law I don't practice. I'm not a maritime attorney, but I blog at length regarding what I've seen in, in reading about with the cruise industry. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, uh, my, my little story about becoming a blogger. So when I described you as a maritime lawyer in the opening, I, I was inaccurate then, is that right? Well, you know, I, I guess right now all I do is is uh, cruise-related litigation. So yeah. I, I'm a I just, for some reason, I lost your audio, and I can't tell whether that's just me or uh, whether that's the way it's going altogether. But uh, right. uh, it, it did link out for a minute. That, that'll happen with these things, unfortunately. Right. Um, so you launched uh, the blog in, in 2009, um, and uh, you've been going at it since. What, what was there, did you see in those early days an impact from the blog on this, uh, you know, plaintiff side law oh, practice that you were starting to build up? It's been, it's been the, absolutely, it's been the, the most remarkable thing. Um, it, it has created so much media attention Bob, I can't, I can't say how, um, how it really changed my, my practice. So I was not receiving a whole lot of new cases on my old cruise law site. But once I, I created Cruise Law News, once, once Lexblog created that blog and I started writing about it, uh, the number of people who have contacted me has just really gone off the chart. I never really anticipated it, but it's been, it's been uh, a career-changing event. For me, at least. Yeah. So, how did you, how, when you first started doing it? I mean, you said you had never really blogged before. I don't know that whether you had any kind of writing or journalism background. Did you find it hard in the early days to kind of get into the routine of it, or did it become come naturally to you? Well, I, I was an English major and a history major, and I, I, I like to write. Um, no wonder you became a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I had to become a lawyer. Exactly. My, my dad's like, well, that's interesting. Um, but, uh, Anyway, I, I started writing, and the writing comes naturally to me. Quite frankly, I, I don't have a, any difficulty writing and in, in, in putting out putting out the blogs. There's a ton of things I like to write about, and so I, I like practicing law now that I'm on the plaintiff side. I, re I represent passengers and crew members, and um, I, I think you know, in order to write a really authentic, genuine article you got to like what you do and it's it's hard to say you know just be passionate about something that you don't like um, but I, but I like writing and I, I like putting out the blogs yeah um, so somebody else also commented the sound has gone in and out I think it's just on your end I'm not sure so Bob now I can't hear you if you can hear me yeah I, I can hear you can you hear me or not there we go. I can hear it now. The, the sound is going in and out, and I'm not sure if it's mine or yours. Uh, this is uh, 
too bad, but uh, um, so by, you know, it, uh, clearly uh, your, your practice has, has come a long way uh, in, in the years since you started this blog. And what, when I look at your blog and see how, how prolific you are, I wonder how do you balance uh, keeping up with the blog and keeping up with the topics that you're writing up and keeping, keeping up with your law practice? How do you do all that? I, I actually get up earlier in the morning uh, than, I, than I used to. Uh, my mornings start earlier. I like to write in, in the mornings, typically, or at least start a blog. I find the time. I mean, I, you know, the biggest difference now between, uh, you know, 15, 20 years, 25 years ago at this point, working at big law firms, you have to account for every moment of your time. You have to build unrealistic hours. So if it sounds like I'm a, a, a former aggrieved defense attorney working at big firms, it's because I was. I, I spent so much time uh, billing hours and worrying about the hours and worrying about my collections at big law firms. So I, I didn't have the time, quite frankly, when I worked at big firms to devote this much time and energy to writing. But this is, you know, this is, I, I practice with my wife. My wife is very understanding <laughs> about my need to write and express myself. Um, you know, when she decided to join our little firm, she had one rule, and that was that she never wanted to see a photograph of herself on the internet. So you, you will not find a photograph of my wife, certainly on, my, on, on our, our blog. Uh, she is technically, you know, the main partner at the firm, quite frankly. Uh, she is, um, she does more than half of the work. She's the smart one in our group. She does all the legal writing, the appellate work, the litigation support. And so I'm the pretty face. <laughs> I'm saying that jokingly, of course. No, a handsome face. Good. Yeah, whatever, whatever. That sounds good. Um, but, but I find the time. I, I really do. And, and I, I, I don't mind writing late at night and uh, working on the weekends on the blog. And it's something that, that I really uh, I love doing, quite frankly. Yeah, and are you doing most of the writing yourself, or are there others who also contribute to the blog? You do it all yourself. No, I, I write 100% of every word you you see typed on, on my page. So it's all it's all mine to blame. It's either to like or to blame. And so, you know, one one thing about the blog is when I joined Facebook, I have a Facebook page called Cruise Law News Facebook, and once I began posting my articles on Facebook. That's where the readership really exploded. So, um, the people who who read the blog and follow me on on Facebook are primarily uh, crew members. Um, so there's, I have around two hundred and fifty thousand people who follow me on Facebook. Probably fifty percent of those people are crew members. So crew members on a cruise ship, as you can imagine, communicate primarily with their families via Facebook. Hmm. So I've got a large portion of people on the cruise ships that follow me and feel connected to the things I write about. I, I talk about labor issues, wage issues. Uh, you know, currently there's this dynamic of as many as 100,000 people stuck on cruise ships at sea during, during this pandemic who haven't been repatriated. They have grievances. And so a lot of those crew members send me tips about things that are happening on the cruise ships. And so every morning I wake up and I have a, anywhere from a handful to a dozen direct messages or emails from crew members 
talking about issues, and many of the issues don't necessarily involve them directly. It's not like they're they're wanting to, to hire a lawyer at that moment to sue a cruise line. They, they're just concerned about things that they're seeing, and they want the world to know about it, and they, they know I'll put a story out there. So that's where I receive a lot of the, of the information I write about. I wondered about that because in, in reading your blog, uh, it, it's really clear that you are a source of, of reporting industry news, not just repeating uh, industry news from other sources. Uh, and and you allude often to tips that you've received without identifying the tipsters per se. I noticed you have on your blog a big red button uh, for sending you tips. I, I don't know how many come in that way. Um, but but uh, how, how have you so how do you I mean, how have you sort of fostered that that network of, of getting plugged in with with all with, with the industry and getting those kinds of tips? Well, it's um, it, it's largely through the Facebook format. Yeah, quite frankly. Yeah. So, so I'll 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 publish an, an article about an issue pertaining to uh, wages, uh, the, the working conditions, the hours, things like that. And then crew members. Uh, share that information uh, widely, and you can, you know, some of the, the uh, Facebook comments are coming in uh, on a regular basis, and people feel passionate about these types of issues. This is their jobs, uh, and they, they feel a connection to want to report what's happening to them. So many crew members uh, at the same time are reluctant to identify themselves as Facebook out of fear that. Uh, their employers, the cruise lines, will find them commenting and just having discussions online with an attorney. And we, we've, we've learned of situations where some of those crew members have, in fact, been terminated. So we receive a lot of uh, direct messages, private messages, or they'll contact us through the tip line or, or otherwise. Uh, and um, uh, that's kind of how we've de developed that relationship with crew members. Of course, when we represent a crew member, if we do a good job, the word will get out and other crew members will have confidence in us and confide their issues uh, to us. Yeah. Hey, has the cruise industry ever come down on you, ever attempted to shut you up on your blog or, or come down in any way where they've uh, uh, responded to your, to your blog in a, in a sort of acrimonious or litigious way? Yeah, a, a couple of times. I mean, you know, my partner has researched the whole issue of prior restraint and, and First Amendment issues and so forth and so on. We've had a couple of cruise lines who were unhappy. I mean, one thing we never do is we never blog about an ongoing case that we have. Right. Um, and and, and so many attorneys do that. They, they yeah. feel quite uh, free in, in expressing their opinions about cases in court. I, I don't do that, so I don't ever cross that line, assuming that that's a, a, a line that shouldn't be crossed. Um, but I, I talk a, a lot about things that make the cruise lines unhappy, of course. Um, the, the, a lot of the blog, is, as you said, is everything the cruise lines don't want you to know. And so, um, but I, I've never been ever accused of ever, by anyone, of ever publishing anything that's false. And so, you know, a typical type of tip that we would receive would be from a crew member. And typically it's many crew members at, at the same time and they'll say, there's been a crew member overboard on a particular ship at sea. And that information will come in. And, and like I said, typically it comes in on the tip line. It comes in through a direct message. 
that come through Facebook. We'll get all this information of people seeing the same type of thing. And then we will verify that information by seeing where the ship is located in the world. There are tracking systems where you can see ships at sea. We'll see you know, the normal pattern of a ship going from Miami to uh, Nassau is pretty much a straight line. But when there's a man overboard, the ship is doing search and, and rescue missions. And so you can very, very quickly verify, in fact, that something's mm -hmm. happening at sea. And then we will very quickly, within an hour, report that. And then we'll get many thousands and thousands of people following that that site, if we post it on, when we post it on Facebook, we'll get a ton of, of comments. We'll have uh, a lot of crew members reporting anonymously about the circumstance that led to the person going overboard and so forth and so on. This stuff used to be completely secret. So there, there wasn't any reporting of this anywhere in the world. Sometimes uh, the Miami Herald would eventually get to a story and talk about a person going over, overboard after the Coast Guard had had, had uh, issued a press release. But a lot of times our stories are kind of real time as they're happening, which I guess I suppose makes it more interesting uh, to read and to, to uh, I mean, sometimes we've reported about man overboards where we're happy to, to, to report that the person was found and rescued and as well and back on the ship. That's, of course, the way we want all these stories to end, but most of the time they don't. It was interesting. I was looking at some of your really early posts on your blog and looking at some of your more recent posts on your blog. And in the earlier days, it seemed, and, and maybe over the years as well, you, you often wrote about passenger deaths on cruise ships. Uh, the last month or so, you've been writing a lot about crew member deaths. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what is going on right now with this industry and, and what, what are you seeing? Well, the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic really hit the cruise industry hard. So the cruise industry was suspended by order of the Centers for Disease Control in a no-sale order issued on March 13th. And so we are seeing this pandemic unfold. We were reporting about it. We were talking about the cruise lines refusing to refund uh, or reschedule uh, cruises for their guests and so forth and so on. And then you started hearing about the Diamond Princess, one of the Princess Cruise Line ships, the uh, COVID-19 outbreak, uh, went into to, uh, Japan and was under quarantine. And that led to over 700 positive cases with dozens of deaths. And so we, we, we began reporting about that. And yet the cruise industry kept sailing and I think I just lost you again for a second there. Bob. There you go. There you go. Okay. There we go. And so the, the, the cruise industry started sailing, and then finally the CDC shut them down on March 13th. So the cruise lines discharged all of their passengers, disembarked all of their passengers, and yet still had a full complement of crew members. And they were hopeful to get quickly in the, in the first no sale order was for only 30 days. So the cruise industry said, well, we'll be back and running by mid-March and we don't want to send the crew members home because we want them on the ships when we can start again. And so they didn't send their repatriate their crew members back home. So then 
the CDC extended the no-sale uh, order until the end of this month, until July 24th. And then the cruise line was like, oh my goodness gracious, we've got all these crew members who are still on the ships. It's been a, a month uh, and we don't want to pay these crew members because we're not receiving any incoming uh, revenue. And then about that time, uh, the ports started closing and the borders were closing and so forth and so on. So that really became a real complicating factor. The cruise lines couldn't repatriate their crew members, even though they were trying to at the last moment. And so th these crew members were basically stuck at sea. And so there were uh, originally well over 100,000 crew members on these foreign flagships off the coast of Miami. They'd come into port to, uh, to bring on provisions and so forth and so on but they were basically out in no man's land. And so last count, there's still around 20,000 crew members on cruise ships in and around US waters here uh, in, in Florida. It's, it's an ongoing problem. Uh, and then bringing uh, full circle back to, to your question, as a result of that, many of the crew members are frustrated, depressed because the cruise lines have suspended their wages they're stuck on these ships. They can't get home to support their family members. There's a broader issue of suicide at sea. Hung up again for a second there. there you the go. Cruise lines. So every six crew members jumping overboard. Yeah. Uh, but now what you've seen in the last 30 days, you've seen as many as a dozen, clearly at least 10, perhaps 12 crew members who have decided to end their lives by jumping overboard or uh, otherwise ending the, their own lives, it's it's a real, it's a real, it's a real tragedy. It's a real um, a sad event. I mean, it sounds like a horrible situation. Crew members stuck on boats, uh, not sure they're getting paid, uh, not able to see their families. And are are they? Is the coronavirus continuing to be a threat on these ships as well? It it is to a lesser extent. So there there still are crew members who, you know, when they repatriated uh, a crew member, many, many of these companies to avoid having to pay for private charter flights home for their crew members. So our CDC said, you can come through U.S. ports, you can come to our airports, but you have to get on a private charter uh, if you're a crew member, because they had problems with crew members flying in commercial flights and so forth and so on, staying in hotels and spreading this virus. And so they would require private transportations. The cruise lines have decided, well, you know, if we want to repatriate a hundred crew members and fly them back to the Philippines or India or Indonesia, it'll cost us at least a thousand persons. So they're doing their math, a hundred thousand crew members at a cost of a thousand each, that's a hundred million dollars. Well, gosh, we don't want to pay that. So they have kept them on the ships and they've actually sailed some of the cruise ships, believe it or not, all the way to India, all the way to Manila, all the way through the Caribbean islands because it's cheaper to burn uh, bunker fuel and keep them on the ships that they're already having to pay for and provide the minimal food for them and not pay them and actually sail them to their home ports and put them off. Now those crew members then have to be under quarantine for a period of time because the, the various countries uh, don't want crew members coming from ships that uh, have been infected with COVID-19. Um, the majority, that is well over 50% of the cruise ships, 
uh, have had positive cases of COVID-19. So there still are reports of crew members who are during this quarantine period testing positive once they finally get them back home to their home countries, which then just creates another series of delays for these poor crew members. Uh, you, you, you wrote a post uh, about a month ago uh, in which you uh, talked about the president of Norwegian Cruise Lines claiming that the cruise ship is safer than anywhere else in the world right now. Uh, right. What, what, what are the prospects for this industry? What's going to happen? Well, not, well, I take that back. There, there have been one cruise line here in Miami, Norwegian Cruise Line, and you were talking about the CEO of Norwegian Cruise Line, Frank Del Rio, who's very optimistic about getting back to, to work. Uh, in, in, I mean, the, the cruise industry in its heyday, so pre-pandemic, uh, this was a very powerful, highly profitable industry. The, the cruise lines, because they're foreign flagged and they're incorporated in foreign countries, uh, are not subject to US taxes. So the cruise industry doesn't flag their, their ships here in the U.S. and they incorporate their businesses overseas to avoid not only uh, U.S. income tax, but U.S. wage and labor laws, as well as occupational health and safety laws. Um, it, it is, um, Norwegian Cruise Line has just issued their uh, COVID-19 protocols um, to try to uh, comply with the CDC's requirements uh, so the industry is still shut down right right now, um, and the, the cruise trade organization, Cruise Line International Association, has stated that they do not anticipate beginning their operations until September 15th. Um, but you would really not know it looking at all these cruise lines. So only NCL has issued their new protocols for safe cruising. Uh, NCL is claiming through their CEO that uh, there's not a safer way to have a vacation, but the Norwegian Cruise Line protocols do not even include the wearing of masks, if you can imagine that, or oh. any kind of a face covering. And so you know that this whole issue, I guess it's very political now, whether you're going to wear a mask or not. Everyone should be wearing a mask. It's a, right. a no-brainer. Right. But there's no way the CDC will permit the cruise industry to sail unless they require with a bare minimum. Um, I'd like to see the, the cruise industry get back on its feet, quite frankly. Uh, I'm not anti-cruise because I know it is a source of employment for literally hundreds of thousands of seafarers, primarily from Asia and India and Indonesia and the Philippines. I know the industry needs to get back on its feet, but we will never see cruising like it used to be, where you have 100% occupancy. You have these monster ships today, six, 8,000 people, including the crew. You'll never ever have an environment where you have 6,000 to 8,000 people on one of the ships sailing out of a port in the US. Um, so it's gonna, I don't know what's gonna happen, but it, it's, it's bad news. The industry's hemorrhaging money they're taking out massive loans, um, and it is—it's really very touchy at this point. Yeah, we we heard so much about uh, passengers being stranded on cruise ships uh, in the early days of the coronavirus crisis. Um, what happened with those passengers? Were they able to get recourse of some kind for that? There are 
certain attorneys who have taken those cases. We, we're involved in a couple of, of cases um, uh, where, where there have been outbreaks. The, the, the passengers who were on ships, so, so some of these ships, so there's all American Line ship, the Westerdam that sailed. Hall uh, American Line, of course, is based in, in Seattle, and it sailed in late January. So we, we had customers, guests on cruise ships before they sailed on that particular ship, contacting our office saying, we don't want to go on this particular ship. You know, my parents have underlying health conditions. I understand there's pandemic out there. The World Health Organization uh, declared this to be a, uh, a worldwide uh, public health issue at the end of January. And so people were trying to, to, to cancel and rebook their cruise or at least get refunds and so forth and so on. The cruise lines were refusing to refund or permit any cancellations without very draconian uh, uh, penalties. So a lot of people sailed on, on ships. The Westerdam that I just mentioned was denied port access from five countries. I think Thailand, uh, uh, Guam, uh, Japan, um, the Philippines all denied that particular ship port access until eventually let their passengers uh, off in um, Cambodia, believe it or not. Now, none of those passengers uh, became infected, although they were greatly inconvenienced. So those types of uh, disappointed expectation type of cruises do not result in any litigation, but we have been in, there are a number of lawsuits that have been filed. Uh, we've been contacted, there are a number of, of lawyers representing passengers uh, who uh, became infected, uh, particularly on the, on the carnival fleet of, uh, of cruise ships. Uh, there was a, a ship, the Ruby uh, Princess, that went into Australia. Uh, there was a, another carnival on the cruise ship in the Costa Line, Comet Costa Luminosa, that sailed from the Caribbean and eventually made its way to France. There were a large number of people infected with COVID. There are a number of, of deaths. And so there are, there are some legal claims being pursued. Yeah. Do you, do you cruise? Do you go on cruises? No, no, I, I don't go on cruises for, for, for a num number of, of reasons. I, I, I look at the, the, uh, the cruise industry is an environmental nightmare, quite frankly. I, I, I think that they're uh, destroying pretty much everything they can by discharging vast quantities of plastics and uh, uh, sulfur dioxide emissions. And uh, um, they're, they're kind of making a muck of the world. So I, I would much prefer um, kayaking with my family, quite frankly, uh, going to a national park. I, the thought of being on a, on a on a cruise ship with six or eight thousand other people going into a port that has five or six ships, this seems like the worst imaginable vacation you could go on. My my kids say, "Dad, why don't we go cruising?" And I, and I <laughs> my mom uh, and their mom, my wife will say, "Because Dad's afraid that you're going to be served fifteen or twenty drinks on a cruise ship, and you're both tall, and you're going to fall over the rails, and we'll, we'll never see you go." That's the way Dad feels, and she's partly partly correct. Um, yeah. So I I, I, I suspect you'd have to wear a disguise as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd have to I'd have to wear a wig. But uh, but you know, if you want to cruise, if that's your idea of a vacation, my secretary, there are attorneys in my office that love to cruise. They don't really tell me about it. 
they, they, you know, my, my secretary loves to cruise on Disney cruises, but Disney cruise perhaps has the least onerous, abusive uh, labor and wage violations of any cruise line out there. And yeah. they have, uh, you, you know, the, the fear of falling over a cruise ship is a fear that we've seen uh, throughout our practice. So, so believe it or not, you can fall out of a cruise ship, off of a cruise ship. And typically it's because you've been served 20 drinks and you've bought a, a all you can drink package and you try to get your money's worth and right. two o'clock in the morning, you do something admittedly foolish because you're in a state of obvious intoxication and you fall off the ships. Uh, and, you know, we've gone to congressional uh, hearings where the cruise industry was ordered to install automatic man overboard systems. So there's technology out there that will send a signal to the bridge when someone goes over the rail. They'll actually capture, capture an image of the person going over the rail. And when they go into the water, they have sophisticated radar and infrared technology that will actually track them in the water. It's amazing. And they, they have programs that will determine the most likely uh, direction uh, that they will float in the water. And so you can have technology and, and these, de these devices, this technology costs maybe a quarter of a million dollars per ship. It will save lives. It will, it will uh, improve the chances of the, them being rescued very few cruise lines are doing that, even though there, there was an order um, uh, way back in um, uh, 2012 that required them to install this technology. So uh, I'm not sure why I'm babbling on about this man overboard system. I obviously want to sell it to everyone I can. Yeah. It would save lives and make cruising safer. Yeah, I mean, it raises the question. I mean, you mentioned earlier that, that cruise ships are, are, are not flagged in the United States so that they are not subject to a lot of the, the uh, laws of the United States. You're clearly doing your part to hold the cruise lines accountable. But is, is there more that the U.S. government could be doing or should be doing to make cruise lines safer and, uh, and, and to as well tackle the environmental issues that you raise? I, I think that, that there are. So the issue of crime on cruise ships is, is, a, is a real problem, quite frankly, from my perspective. So we, we have studied the issue. We've attended, I think, five congressional hearings. We've had five of our clients testify at these hearings. And, and due, due to the efforts of many of our clients who've lobbied the Congress, there is legislation requiring the reporting of crime on cruise ships. It used to be the cruise lines didn't have to report it. So now if you go on a ship and there's an issue of sexual assault or physical assault, uh, there's an issue of um, um, suspicious deaths of people who disappear on cruise ships. The cruise lines have to report all of that. They used not to report it. So when I first started this blog, they were just then being about to be uh, compelled to disclose all this type of information. So that, that's been a big improvement, quite frankly, because the data that's come out, once this information became publicly available, you can, you can easily conclude based on the crime reporting that certain cruise lines have been forced to uh, be involved in, that certain cruise ships have a higher sexual assault rate, for example, than say 30 of the states in the United States of America. So looking at per capita sexual assault, you can see 
where the problems lie. And that's something that I think is important. Now, an average consumer, an average person wanting to go on a cruise vacation with their family, they just want to have a fun time and relax and go on a luxurious, romantic, carefree vacation. They don't want to look up crime statistics. So there's an issue really whether that information is finding its way into the consumer's thought processes. So that, that is something that I do on, on an ongoing, regular basis. So all these people who follow me on Facebook, I have a lot of environmentalists who follow me. I have a lot of people concerned with the impact of mass tourism, with the, with the effects of these huge ships going into the smaller uh, ports in the Caribbean and so forth and so on. But I have a lot of really hardcore cruise fans, quite frankly, that get upset with everything I report because they don't want to hear it. So the one, number one criticisms I have when I posted an article, particularly on Facebook, is they say, come on, can't you just say something positive for once? I'm about to go on a vacation. I don't want to hear this stuff. Give me a break. And I'm like, well, that's what the travel agents are for. That's what the, the, the travel publications are for. That's what the cruise lines are for. There's a massive... Uh, propaganda effort out there with the PR people and advertisers promoting all the wonderful thing about the cruise industry. And if you want a good deal and you don't want to worry about uh, exploited workers, underpaid workers, or the effects of pollution, air pollution, and otherwise, don't worry about it. Just go on a cruise and have a good time. Just be careful. You know, there are a couple things you should be careful of. Don't take your kids on a cruise and not supervise them. Because, yes, there have been sexual assaults mm. against children. There have been children molested on cruise ships. So there's lots of articles about that. Again, I don't write about my own cases, but I talk about it far more than the, the cruise industry wants anyone to know about it, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jim, I know I've kept you longer than I promised to, but let me come back to the blogging. Uh, let me come back to blogging just for a moment and just ask, you know, in, in your uh, 11 years now uh, as a blogger, um, any advice you offer other, say, lawyers who either want to get into it or are doing it now and want to get better at it? Uh, what have you learned uh, about what makes for a successful blog? Well, I can I can talk only about, about how I have benefited from it. So, Blogging is an effective way to get your name out there. I, I have been uh, very fortunate to have uh, a very uh, widely covered blog. So you, you talk about, you know, getting your name in lights, right? So if the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, the Miami Herald and Chicago Tribune and LA Times put you in an article, you must know what you're talking about. Well, you could debate that, but it, you know, all press is good press as long as they got your name spelled right, right, right? So it's a fantastic way not to pay for advertising, quite frankly. When I, when I, what I didn't tell you is when I first started my law firm, I took out a yellow page ad. I did. I took out a yellow page <laughs> ad. It cost me $443 a month, and it was the size of a business card. And there it was, right about the time I went to Internet advertising, Jim Walker represents passengers and crew members on cruise ships. So for 12 months, I paid $443. I didn't get one single client from that yellow page ad. So you can, in, in, 
the, the deals that are available in blog networks are just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I've told uh, Kevin O'Keefe he, he should charge me 10 times as much as he does a month, and I'd be happy to pay it because it's yeah. well worth it. So it's a, it's a fantastic way to advertise. So the one thing I would say, and I tell people, is you have to be um, passionate about what you do. And that requires you to enjoy your work. So that's a little bit heavy for blog advice. Love what you like to do. You know, you, you got to get into a profession that you really like. When I switched from being uh, a lawyer working for a big law firm, having to bill all of my time and worry about uh, my collections and so forth and so on, and I became a solo practitioner and later began practicing with my life, boom. It all started happening. I love being a lawyer. I love coming to work and I love writing about that. And it's the only way to be genuine and authentic is if you love what to do. So I can't tell someone to be authentic and genuine and to be passionate if they're not living a passionate life. So that would be my advice to someone wanting to blog is, is to reevaluate your life, make certain you're headed in the right direction and write uh, things that, uh, that, that compel you and be always be factually honest and objective, but give your opinions for what they're worth. You're not necessarily going to make friends. You may uh, make as many enemies as you do friends, but that's kind of the nature of life. So that that would be kind of my advice in a nutshell. Well, good advice, and your your passion comes through quite clearly on your blog, and it comes through in this conversation today. Um, really appreciate your taking the time to sit and talk with talk with me. It's been a real pleasure to. Uh, to, to get to know you a little bit more. Yeah, thank you, Bob. So uh, I know you've been blogging for a long time, but much longer than I have. So uh, nice to finally meet you, sir. Yeah, good to meet you. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Stay well and keep up the good work. Okay, see you, Bob. Yeah, bye.